Everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to the podcast, Noel Castler podcast, episode fifty-seven, coming to you on a rainy Sunday morning, and it's a Sunday morning. I hope all you listeners are doing okay. I know you're hearing this on Monday or later in the week, but I'm waking up on Sunday and recording this, and you know it's a it's a hard morning. You know, we woke up to evidence of genocide in Ukraine, and we sort of knew it was happening, right? What else was going to happen? What else has Putin done? What else has the Russian army done? You know, they did it to Finland. You know, they did it to the Czechoslovakians, you know, and they're doing it again now. They did it a few years ago in Syria, you know, and we all talk about never again, and now we're watching it happen yet again, and it's pretty disheartening stuff. And, uh, it's easy to get uh, overwhelmed by all the news, you know, and it, it can't be good for us seeing what we're seeing, right? It's like living during World War II and like they had Twitter, you know, and you were getting videos and pictures, you know, of the things that, you know, GIs had witnessed and didn't speak about for the rest of their lives, you know, horrors, man's inhumanity to man, the kind of stuff that made dudes, you know, keep silent about it forever they they didn't bring it home and talk about it and i'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it i'm just saying like we're now seeing the kind of stuff that you you know only had to see before if you were you know if you were a soldier and you know i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but i know it's got to stop and i know it's madness and i know it's hard to take so hang in there and say stay strong i've uh you know i've had an interesting weekend Got to see some friends play on Friday. My buddy Felix from the band Zebra was playing in a Led Zeppelin tribute band that he has. And they kick ass called Cashmere, you know, and it was fun to watch the John Bonham character nail all the drum parts. And of course, it made me think of Taylor and uh, Hawkins, who we lost last week. And it made me think of Dave Grohl, who loved, loves John Bonham, you know, all drummers do any rock drummer of that ilk was influenced by John Bonham. So it was fun to sort of recreate that stuff live or watch somebody recreate it. And, uh, you know, try to take, not a break, but just try to get out there in the world a little bit and, uh, you know, get in touch with some sort of community. I got to celebrate a patriarch in our family's 90th birthday yesterday with some family up in Albany. And that was quite nice. And, uh, you know, that's it. Just, just trying to hang in there. We can get into it. You know, it's obviously a crazy week. The Grammys are on tonight. The Oscars were on last week. I know everybody's sick of talking about that. You probably know how I feel. If you followed my Twitter, you know, it kind of messed with me on two fronts because I'm somebody who worked in live TV on award shows for 25 years and I'm a stand-up comedian. So both my worlds sort of collided and, and it was wrong on every level. Okay. And I'm shocked. And I know some of you listening probably think Chris Rock had it coming. He didn't. Okay. We're in disagreement. Whatever you think about the content, you don't have a right to walk up on stage during a live performance and slap somebody. Okay. And I've seen it. I've never seen anybody get slapped before. Nobody has. And it's very indicative of the sort of rapid demoralization of our country. You know, we, we've now come to accept things that were, were unacceptable before. In, in a normal society, you know, and, and we view everything through the lens of, is that my team or not my team? You know, it was said that people, you know, of my complexion shouldn't even be speaking on the issue this week. No, it's humanity. It's people, it's stars. It wasn't just black people that made Will Smith a star. It was white people that bought the tickets, you know, a lot of them. <laughs> That's why they made him a star. You know, he was the palatable sort of like, you know, hip hop guy on the NBC sitcom. And I've met the man behind the scenes. He's nothing like his public image either or her wife, or his wife. I've worked with them a couple of times and it's not an experience I look back on fondly. And I don't think most people do who come in contact with them professionally, but that's besides the, the, the point, you know, and I've known Chris Rock for a long time. He doesn't know my name, but I've done a gazillion shows with him, you know, award shows in New York. You know, I watched 
Michael Jordan's last game sitting with Chris Rock downstairs in the green room at Radio City Music Hall. We did a lot of events. Chris is a quiet, nice, sweet guy, you know, and he's a brilliant comedian. I saw Chris Rock in a comedy club at a, you know, at a junior high or not junior high, but a junior year prom, the, the Hackley School prom in 1989. We went. It was either Catch a Rising Star or Danger Fields. And Chris Rock was probably like 20 and he was on stage killing it. And I still remember some of the jokes he made that night. He's, a, he's an acerbic comedian, but in that context of the Oscars, you're, get there, you're there to get made fun of. You're getting paid a billion dollars. You know, not really, but, you know, somebody like Will Smith is the kind of guy who always demanded the longest trailer on the set and all that Hollywood BS. You know, he wanted to be treated like a king. And that's how he sat there. Like I was a king and I'm just going to get up and slap my subject. And uh, that's also something they do in, in the cult that he's in too, in Scientology. So the whole thing was eerie and it made me queasy the way the public reacted, the way so many people defended him. You know, I don't want to see the guy go to jail for it or something, but you know, it was a messed up thing to do. Let's be real folks. You don't get on stage and slap somebody. And every, every time I saw something like that happen, I was there for the guy named Soy Bomb who wrote Soy Bomb on his chest and started dancing weird behind Bob Dylan at the Grammys. I, I was standing stage right. And I was like, this is my big chance, you know, to meet Bob Dylan. And I went and got over there. And then the Soy Bomb guy did what he did. And they brought him out in handcuffs. I believe he got arrested. And, uh, they took Bob Dylan out a second later and there goes my chance to meet him because they rushed him back to the you know dressing room. But it's just never right. Whether it's ODB or the guy in Rage Against the Machine, I was standing there with uh, who's the actor that everybody loves in New York, Robert De Niro. And I was about to bring Robert De Niro on stage from the audience, which is a, a unique approach. Right. And we were about to walk up these stairs and he was going to go present an award. This was the VMAs. And all of a sudden we look up and the guy, I think his name is Brad Wilkie from uh, oh, Comerford. It was Tim Comerford from Rage Against the Machine. I think he's a drummer. He was drunk or something. And he got up and climbed on this set piece that was like this big piece of metal that sort of had a jagged edge. And he climbed up on it and started shaking it because his band didn't win for best video or something. And it was dangerous because the set piece wasn't designed for, you know, a six foot tall, you know, 200 pound or whatever guy to climb up on top of it. So it was dangerous. And security guards were like putting their bodies over Christina Aguilera and stuff. And uh, Robert De Niro just looks at me and he goes, ain't no fucking way I'm going up on that stage right now. <laughs> Which was so De Niro, you know, he's just like, no, ain't no fucking way I'm going up there until they deal with this. And they dealt with it. They brought him out of the building, you know, and he got in trouble. Will Smith should have been ejected from that room as soon as he sat back down on his seat. And if you think there wasn't security there, there was. He's just powerful and they didn't know what to do. And those are all my friends and colleagues. I'm not blaming them. You know, I know everyone from the director to the stage managers and I've worked with them forever. I guarantee you people were in shock and people were pissed and people were traumatized. You know, it is traumatic to see that because if you're in tune with what's going on, it was just another new low, you know, in our culture. And I'm not saying Will Smith is low or a demon or something you know people like his product and that's cool people like it it matters to people i got no problem with that his movies aren't made for me i've never seen one of them you know it's just not for me you know i i, I see how stars are created and oscars is people think it's like it's not science you know the, the arts are not a sport you get an oscar because the company that you made the movie for pays the most money to campaign for you to have that oscar you know it's a business transaction it's not anything to mean like you really are the best actor you know because he was not the best actor in that category or in that film but you know he was the one that you could make the most money off of that's why it's so shocking what happened to hollywood and that's why it's such a difficult thing to deal with but, uh, you know, I won't get into it anymore. I know people have their feelings and they probably like, screw, you know, you know, I love Will Smith. He was just protecting. First of all, the joke wasn't even insulting her. The people who came at it from that point of view, they're the ones inferring that bald is ugly on top of her. He was comparing it to G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane was hot. Demi Moore is hot. He was making a joke that referenced back to film, which was the job of the comedian in that moment. OK, Will Smith, 
ego got the best of him. His rage got the best of him. The earlier joke got the best of him that made reference to their marriage, which is one of the bigger open secrets in Hollywood. So that's what he was reacting from. I have power in this town. It's an, un, it's an unspoken thing that we don't talk about the Smiths and what they do. And you're breaking that rule, bro. And I'm going to slap you and try to humiliate you. It was disgusting, you know, but it's American culture right now. You know, as I said, we're at the point where we're accepting things that were unacceptable. And I applaud all the, you know, comedians that, you know, the, the real well-known comedians that are out there, not like myself, <laughs> but, you know, the guys that are speaking out, you know, because they're going to take heat from it, from their audience members, but they're doing the right thing. They're defending their craft and it should be defended because it's a horrible precedent. You know, and I got people that follow me that were like, oh, well, he had it coming. No, it's okay to slap. No, it's not. How could you say that to me? Don't buy a ticket and come see me live. If you think you it's okay for somebody to get up, don't ever see me. Don't follow me. Don't listen to me. You are not welcome. Okay. You're welcome to your opinion, but you're not welcome to have such a stupid opinion. Okay. It's not right. I don't come to your job and slap you when you're handing out napkins in the bathroom. Right. <laughs> that was my joke. But anyway, I'll move on because you can see it's a subject that pisses me off because it's just, you know, it's disheartening. That was a, a business I worked in, you know, which I had my own reasons to sort of get out of. And then, uh, you know, partially because how they created Trump, you know, it's the same kind of people. Live television, man, it's, it's, it's putting an image out there for profit that isn't reality, you know, and when you do that with an unhealthy thing, you know, when you gloss over things that are unacceptable, it degrades the society as a whole. And then you put the comedy element in there and you're like, wow, I'm working this hard to make jokes for people to think it's okay for me to get slapped because they don't like a joke. You know, if it's mean spirited, yell out, heckle the guy. You know what I mean? People do it every night, but you don't have a right to go on stage. Not now, not where we're at sort of war internally and globally, right? You need to create peace. You need to create understanding, you know, and that doesn't mean, you know, it could have been such a great teachable moment. Will Smith could have gotten up there. He had plenty of time to think about it. He could have put his arms around Chris Rock and say, hey, brother, we don't talk about a sister that way. That's a queen right there. And everybody would have clapped and it would have been a wonderful moment. And you would have loved the guy even more. And it would have bent the narrative towards understanding and empathy I got no beef with that, right? I'm not going to be on here bitching if that's what he did, but that's not what he did, right? So done. Anyway, uh, so, you know, where do you want me to start? Jimmy, Jin, Ginny Thomas, you know, the fact that we found out of all the texts, which I talked about last week and which continues this week, you know, that Trump had burner phones, right? That there's seven and a half hours missing from the call logs on the morning of January 6th. It's a coup in plain sight, right? And it's a guy who in every chance he got to make a decision internationally regarding our military, regarding NATO, regarding policy, sided with Putin. You know, Trump is a Putin creation, as I've told you guys before. You know, Mark Burnett went to Russia first and wanted to do a show on the oligarchs at the Beer Space Station. And Putin's guys were like, no, you want to do a show on our guy in New York? And he did. Right. And then we had a presidency, an administration that tried to shake down Ukraine, you know, that did everything they could to stand in the way, soften the strength that Zelensky was garnering in that country as a democratic leader. Right. And Trump's coming at it from the point of view of Paul Manafort. Right. Who was paid by the, you know, the Russian stooges that ran Ukraine before the corrupt thugs paid Paul Manafort, $12 million in the previous campaign, you know, to be Putin's guy in Ukraine, right? The guy who's sort of the intellectual force behind the GOP removing, you know, any mention of Russian aggression in the GOP platform in, in 2016, that guy has sort of laid the ideological groundwork for Putin to invade Ukraine, all the way up to Ambassador Yovanovitch who had to leave because fellow State Department colleagues called her up and said, your life is in danger because Trump has essentially put you on a hit list for looking into the corruption. 
and you need to get out of that country right now. How unimaginable is that? You know, talk about things that we hadn't seen before that we come to accept. That was insane to me at the time. And the audio, and it still is, and the audio recording of Trump, you know, with Lev Parnas and those guys sitting around the lobby, you know, the restaurant in his Trump hotel in D.C. And when he's getting told about Ambassador Yovanovitch, you know, and, and her investigating corruption and possibly standing in the way from of his shakedown of Ukraine and getting them to give him dirt on some fictional story about Hunter Biden. What does Trump do? He says, take her out, take her out. Right. That's a mob boss. And that's not a guy with dementia, by the way, which was another Russian talking point that was put on there, you know, so they can flip the script on Biden later on and give Trump an out in case he has ever is ever held accountable. I never trusted that narrative because it wasn't true. I know who this guy is. I'm not saying his brain is healthy, but he's a mob boss and he knows what he's doing and where his interests lie in every moment. And that tape was the best example of that when he's just like, take her out now. Right. That's who he is. He knew he was corrupting Ukraine. He knew he was going to benefit from it. He knew he wanted to build a casino in Moscow. You know, that was his ambition. That's what they were doing in 2016. That's what Michael Cohn lied about. You know. That this whole thing was in concert with Putin to for Trump to become an oligarch here in the U.S. and control the wealth. And it's still going on. Right. You had seven, eight GOP senators fly over there in 2018 on July 4th and meet with Sergey Lavrov. And then they come home and Ron Johnson's first statement is, hey, the sanctions aren't working, meaning drop them, right? You had American senators that were under the influence of Russians on the fucking 4th of July, right? Come home and try to change GOP policy. They were cheering Putin on, essentially, up until they couldn't anymore, until the photographs and the videos started rolling in of what Putin did. Up until that point, and even beyond it, in the case of Tucker Carlson, they were providing talking points for Putin to commit genocide on a sovereign democratic nation, to ethnically cleanse them, right, to build mass graves. You know, I saw the documents that somebody put on Twitter you know, of these huge graves and it was instructions how they would dig them and put the bodies and put chemicals and then bulldoze them, which they undoubtedly did. We're at the beginning of the phase of discovery here. And what we've already seen, if you're a sentient being, will shock you to the, you know, for the rest of your life. But what can we do about it? We can take action. We can start telling the truth and realize who these people are and what's really going on here. Because that's what's really going on here. You know, MAGA and the GOP are on the same goddamn side as Putin. You know, I'm not saying they're loving the imagery and the brutality because it certainly doesn't help their case, but they love the corruption and they love the manipulation and they love the sort of ethno Christian, like, you know, we're the good people, the eugenics side of it. Right. And that's why they're going full on on it. You know, Trump was bragging last night yet again, having his rally because he's walking free. Right. Because A.G. Garland's got to make sure he dots all those I's and crosses those T's, you know. And it, by, by the way, it even came out that Biden's like, man, the guy needs to stop acting like a pontificating judge and more like a pissed off prosecutor. And that's the point I'm always making. No one's saying he's a bad dude, but he's not meeting the moment. He's not reading the room. We need vengeance at this point. We need righteousness. You know, we need our anger and rage and confusion to be channeled into using the instruments of this country and these laws to hold these men accountable. Otherwise, what are they worth? They're fancy words on paper as opposed to bodies lying on the street. Right. And that could happen here. You know, not to the same extent that we could get invaded, but we could have, you know, we already have people that are sort of cheering on authoritarian tactics. There's people sitting behind Trump last night wearing their MAGA hats, laughing and cheering when he's bragging about being friends with Putin and Kim Jong Un 
and President Xi. He's bragging about his friendships with them, which is what he did in New York City when he was trying to get people to invest in Trump Tower. And they were like, well, what are you going to do you know, about the cement strike and the Teamsters? And he's like, don't worry. They're all my buddies. I'm friends with fat Tony Salero, Salerno. I'm down with the Gambinos. You know, and when Paul Castellano got whacked, he was down with Gotti. The guy whacked him. Trump's a mole, not a mole, but like, you know, Trump only cares about Trump. And he thinks it's an asset to hang out with scumbags. You know, he thinks that gives him strength. Hey, I'm the guy you want. These guys respect me. No, they use you and they think you're an idiot and in a moral like them. And you're too stupid to see their long game because they're appealing to your greed. But to have Americans sit and cheer that on, you know, there's no coincidence that the first thing Trump did when he ran for office was demonize Mexicans and get a whole bunch of millions and millions of followers, followers to cheer it at every rally. Build a wall. That's a chant of authoritarianism. That's you're marching towards genocide when you're saying crap like that, when you're getting people to hate another people because of their ethnicity, you know? And they locked their children up in cages and separated the families. That's horrific, right? But it's not unrelated to putting people on buses in Mariupol and sending them back into Russia and stuff, you know? It's wrong and it's on the march. And it's not just in the US, it's all, it's in Australia and Great Britain, you know? And all these democracies that have these guys that are willing to sort of have no scruples, see violence, you know, and fake power, fake strongman tactics, tactics as very appealing to their base and an expedient way to get more money from big donors. You know, because it's all, it's all sort of like the same con. You know, and that's why Ginny Thomas is, is sort of like weaved into this whole story. And that's why I've always tried to speak out against her, because the rot has crept all the way into the Supreme Court. Right. And Ginny, Ginny Thomas got like six hundred and eighty thousand dollars between 2003, 2007 or eight. Right. Five years. They paid her that much money from the Heritage Foundation. Right. Just a couple of years after Clarence Thomas voted to make Bush president. Right. The Supreme Court is the only reason Al Gore wasn't president. OK, that's a nice chunk of change. A couple of years later, you know, maybe somebody like that could be useful to help distribute cash throughout the GOP in the intervening years. Right. Which is exactly what she did. And Clarence Thomas, by the way, wrote none in his Supreme Court disclosure notice in 2008 or nine. Right. He wrote none. So he lied about it. He's a justice on the Supreme Court, and he lied about his wife making any money. $680,000 is probably more than I've ever made in my life, <laughs> you know? Like, certainly more than I, I never made that in five years, I promise you. And, uh, you know, that kind of money is getting thrown around. That kind of cash in D.C. makes all kinds of crazy things happen, right? And we accept it. We're supposed to accept that Trump had a call log that's missing, that went missing before the riots started. So they knew something was going to happen. It also came out today that CNN got like this, this reporting that the White House diarist, the guy who was taking notes and, you know, documenting the white, you know, Trump's administration was sort of kicked out the door a couple of days before the insurrection. Like, we don't need you anymore. You know, go take a hike, go get some coffee. Right. They knew what they were doing. And this cover up isn't after the fact. OK, these were the things that were put in place for when they got away with it. You know, that's what I've tried to illuminate to people is like the fake electors. Right. And the fake documents that they put together or attempted to in Wisconsin and Arizona and stuff. That was for like the audit that would take place after the fact when Trump installed himself, when their plan worked right on January 6th. And when people tried to look at it, they'd basically pull up these false records and documents. It's like the equivalent of keeping two sets of books, right? Which is Trump 101 and what he did as a businessman his entire career, right? And which Alvin Bragg basically had him on dead to rights and decided to let him walk recently. <laughs> and, that, and that's, 
a good example of sort of what you're battling here. You're not just battling Trump and Trumpism. You're battling how deep that corruption is in our governments, in our banks, in our institutions. And until we're really honest about that, we're not going to get past it. You know, and, and the Trump January 6th, you know, from November, from the day after the election to January 6th, that's the perfect example. That's the story you need to tell. That's the stuff you need to investigate, right? Why did Trump give Jim Jordan the Presidential Medal of Freedom on the Monday following January 6th? Like January 8th or whatever it was, you know, January 11th. Why did he give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, right? Was he buying his silence? Was Jim Jordan the burner phone guy, you know, who walked across a bridge somewhere in Southwest and threw him into the Potomac? Right? Or the Anacostia? Little rivers for you, DC listeners. But uh, what was it? That was buying silence, right? Buying loyalty. And they're all betting on Trump coming back into power. That's why they're all basically defying subpoenas. Except for Jared Kushner, who spoke, interestingly, you know, for I think the same amount of time, for like seven or eight hours on Friday. So it'll be great to hear what he, he said. And they said he answered the questions, which probably didn't make Trump too happy. You know, and I don't have enough information to get into that. But I know Jared's more wily than the rest of the family. And I know none of them trust <laughs> Jared. So, you know, and Jared's the one who's never going to really get implicated. It was no accident Jared was overseas when this went down, right? This is a plan that was in works, you know, for over a month before it happened. You know, Jared knew about it and got the hell out of there. So he had an alibi because that's who Jared is. He's smarter than the rest of them, you know, and Jared didn't, I'm not singing Jared's praises. Like, look, don't get me wrong. <laughs> okay. But, you know. He's not like, you know, the one saving grace with the Trumps is they really are so sort of stupid, you know, besides being, you know, conniving and coming up with these plans, they have big mouths and they have a lack of discipline that just, you know, makes everything kind of eventually like get messed up anyway, you know, and Jared would have known that. And Jared's probably got a, a golden parachute or, or two, you know, where he can pull the ripcord and blast out of this country in a heartbeat and live out his days somewhere in UAE, you know, somewhere Saudi Arabia or Israel even. So it's going to be interesting how it plays out. It has to play out. We have to get this whole story and you have to not, you know, I, I don't say you like accusing we as a person, we, we can't lose sight of these outrages because they, you then come to accept it. And that's been Trump's MO since the beginning too. That's what he did in live TV. That's why I always use the example of lining up the contestants and inspecting them at the pageants. And people are like, how can he be doing this? People are disgusted. And the next year it's written into the schedule. Trump inspects contestants, one hour downtime. Crew can walk out, right? They just made it financially work to their benefit, but they didn't stop the behavior. And that's sort of what I was saying about why at the Hollywood, you know, Oscar slap was so outrageous because some things are just wrong and you have to stand up, you know? And we're, we're sort of losing the ability to stand up for what's right and wrong because we're so addicted to our own point of view, the ability to be a contrarian, the ability to just sort of lash out on Twitter and stuff and be like, you forgot this or, you know, whatever stupid, stupid, you know, ad hoc, smart ass response that, that folks go to all the time just to grab a little likes on somebody else's post. That's what we've sort of degraded down to because the trauma of what we're living through is almost impossible to deal with, right? How do you deal with it? You know, if you don't drink and do drugs too, <laughs> you know, like if you don't have the benefit of tranquilizers these days, and I'm not saying that's a benefit, these are tough times to live through for everybody. And we need to get back to like understanding the common good understanding every little act of, of, of compassion you can do throughout the day, slowing down and letting that person merge into the lane in front of you on the highway instead of speeding up and cutting them off so you know they don't get in front of you and you don't lose another half a nanosecond in your commute to the job you hate anyway. Stopping and making sure somebody else is protected and has a little courtesy when they're trying to get on a highway at 70 miles an hour, that's overpopulated, 
because too many people still drive cars everywhere, right? Because we didn't invest in you know public transportation the way we should and wean people off of oil, the addiction that's destroying our planet on a daily basis, right? You can do little acts like that and be part of the greater good. You can shift the karmic balance and you have to do that. We have an obligation. I feel powerless sitting over here. You know, a life of, of, of privilege. You know, I live a life of privilege. I'm on a state, uh, you know, I'm on a nice chunk of land, like in a nice house on a nice part of the country. Bombs aren't going to drop on me tonight. I don't have to walk out in the parking lot and hope, you know, World Central Kitchen dropped off some food because I'm staying behind because my elderly relatives can't leave the town that's still getting bombarded as these guys are doing. You know, talk about a saint. Talk about understanding what's going on in the world and doing something about it. Chef Jose Andres and his organization, you know, are angels on earth. And I can't think of anything more important you could do in your life than hand somebody a hot meal when they're going through the suffering they're going through. I'll take that over a billion dollars any day of the week. That kind of love lasts and makes a difference. And it's very important. And when I call him out, I'm not just saying him. He's the figurehead. He's the guy who raises the money. He's the general in that army of, of goodwill. But like, it's the guy peeling the potatoes, you know, who doesn't know where the rest of his family is or volunteered and came over there from Poland or whatever to help out the guy, you know, washing the pans, you know, all those people that are working on behalf of the greater good and saying, Hey, there's still people who care, you know, that kid who went into the zoo and took out, I think it's Irpin and took out the uh, kangaroos. He went back again yesterday for some other animals they're anteater looking things i don't know what they were they were <laughs> they were they were cool looking man they were cute and they're gonna live because he put them in a van and drove them out of there in the midst of this horror where bodies are lying on the streets humans still have enough love and compassion in their hearts to go in and rescue these animals that are caged in a zoo where they shouldn't be in the first place should have been Whatever those animals were, I don't think they have kangaroos in Ukraine, <laughs> right? Which is always what I've felt about zoos, by the way, because the worst, you know, when, when the war started in Afghanistan, and I remember pictures of the lion, you know, in the zoo at Kandahar, and, you know, zoos don't belong. You know, that's a different, uh, a different thing, but goddamn, you know, like, that's a different debate. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's always like hits, hits home. When, when something like that happens. So let's, let's focus on the, uh, the people that are doing good, you know? So yeah, like focus on the acts of kindness and humanity you see amongst all these horrors. Cause you can, that's something you can do. That's something we can emulate. You know, that's something we can do here. There's, there's, there's work to be done all over this planet right now that has to do directly with some of the causes of this conflict. You know, Russia wouldn't be Russia and Putin wouldn't be powerful if people weren't buying that oil, right? It's the same way the right wing wouldn't have the power if people weren't consuming so much oil here and having it available cheap to put in their oversized cars wasn't such a political, you know, football to be thrown back and forth between parties. And when the real story should be, why are we still using this crap? Why are we using fossil fuels, right? Old dinosaur bones. Why is that fuel? <laughs> you know what I mean? What is oil? It's crude. You pull it out of the earth. What is coal? Like you're not that advanced a people if that's how you're getting your energy. You're one, you know, one mark above using whales. You know, they lit the whole city of London on whale oil. That's cutting edge fuel at one point, not too long ago, you know, about a century ago. That's insane. A little over a century ago. That's insane. You're killing whales, these beautiful, majestic, peaceful creatures. You're killing them, you know, to light a street lamp, light a lamp on your desk, use a freaking candle, right? Beeswax candle. My point is, we can get energy from the sun now. We have all this technology. We like to think of ourselves, you know, as technologically savvy, 
you know, and smart, but we still want these crude ways of getting, you know, energy and power. And it's just, it's got to stop. If you don't think it's got to stop, don't think it. But when your house floats away in a flood, you know, because 70% of Antarctica just melted, you know, a huge chunk just fell off this week of the ice shelf. It's horrific. It's horrific. So pick your poison, but provide the antidote. You know, I'm not saying all this stuff just to piss you off. And I'm preaching to myself. I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm just trying to express to you how I feel, because I feel the same sense of overwhelming dread and sadness that I think many of us feel. But then I wake up in the morning, you know, I look out the window and there's a, a spruce tree outside my window and I see a morning dove sitting there in the tree looking at the morning, you know, rubbing his head into the pine needles. You know, and then I notice there's bugs flying around because it's spring and there's grass coming up out of the ground and soon there'll be flowers, you know, and the birds are already singing. That's nature. It's out there. And nature is here to teach us something. You know, every creature on this earth has a purpose and a plan and a, a secret that you could learn from it that would make your life better. I know that sounds crazy, but anytime I've ever spent studying animals, I've learned something. And I don't mean studying animals from a scientific. I mean, from like Walden Pond, you know, Thoreau said, like, it was not a waste of time to sit and watch birds all day, <laughs> you know, like, it's not. Be still, observe this beautiful creation. That's what we're here for. Consciousness is there to experience itself. And the only way it can do that is through our awareness and attention, right? Nature can only know itself through you paying attention to it, if that makes any sense. I know that's kind of esoteric, but what I'm trying to say is you can be present for the miracle and beauty of life and by by bearing witness to that and, and holding a space for it in your consciousness, it, it sort of expands the message of what that is, right? Of what that creature is and what that represents, you know? And it's all a dance. It's all like this beautiful harmony that had some kind of wisdom beyond our understanding, but it's clearly, you know, working, right? If we don't, if we don't sort of destroy it, right? That's what we do. We destroy habitats. You know, I have lynx in my yard, coyotes, beavers out by the river, all kinds of these animals because I stopped mowing like four acres of lawn a couple of years ago and just let it grow, Could grow, gave it back to the butterflies. It's called being on the pollinator pathway, right? It's like a thing in the Northeast. Because there's so few like bees and stuff. You know, on April 1st, which was the other day, everybody's cranking up the lawn mowers and the lawn services are coming for three hours and they're cutting down the dandelions. The dandelions are food for the bees. You know, that's their first meal in the spring. You're not even giving them a chance when you cut them down right away. You know, the idea of weeds, you know, there's invasive species that, that's wrong. And that's another thing of humans sort of traveling and stuff and bringing fish that don't belong here, you know, and throwing, you know, snakehead catfish into, you know, a pond in Maryland. And, you know, next thing you know, they're everywhere. But like, that's, that's another thing, you know, starlings and whatever. But nature, you know, in its proper ge geographical balance is a wonderful thing, but you got to give it a chance to work, right? You know, we're people that will dump pesticides all over our lawns because we don't like a weed or two, right? Like, you know, most of them in a climate where that grass wouldn't even be growing in the first place, you know? And it's hard to get over the aesthetic loss of what we've all been culturally like thought of as that's what it looks like to have a nice lawn, right? But I'll tell you, when I get to watch these lynx hunt, I sit there in my living room, my binoculars and watch these coyotes and know that they now have a place to eat because of all the brush and stuff that grows and like the hay provides like, you know, a lot of life from field mice and all kinds of other animals, you know, that are in the food chain. So animals come and, and feed and they bring their young and teach them how to hunt, you know, and, and I get to see this miracle, this ecosystem of nature and wildlife that's right here an hour outside of the city. You know, I see hawks and bald eagles and there's a heron that, that feeds in the pond. I got a, a, a 
two giant turtles that are like 70 years old. They're like 50 pounds, massive things. They'll be coming back in a matter of weeks. They go to the river, which is at the end of the property in the winter. And then they come back in late spring, middle spring and get in the pond all summer. And they've been doing that, you know, for 70 years. How do they do that? How do they know where to go? Right. There's a wisdom there. Right. There's something I don't understand that's beyond me, but it certainly benefits my life to observe it and not impede it to allow it to take place so I can be a witness to it and and gain some insight and deepen my love and understanding of this planet and all the creatures that are on it. That's the kind of things that we need to focus on. At least I do. I'll only speak for myself, but that sort of awareness. You know is what we need to bring into this world. It'll, there'll, there'll come a time where awareness and water will be our most valuable resources if we stay on the path we're on, right? Because we're starving the planet in a way, right? The droughts and the climate change, you know, that, that's not going to bode well for agriculture and things like that, right? Water's drying up. You know, Lake Powell is almost dry in Arizona. You don't need golf courses, you know, Nevada, wherever like Powell is, you know, right. You don't need, you don't need all this fake nature. Get in, get in, get to get into real nature. Why do you need a golf course in the desert? Just be in the goddamn desert, take some peyote and maybe get some insights, have some fun, (laughs) you know, forget all this man-made corporate bullshit, you know, get back to nature. We need some of that. We need some of that hippie spirit back in this time, right? Where's the soundtrack? You know, at least during Vietnam and all the conflicts, they had great, great music all the time. You know, I'm not saying music's bad now, but it ain't the same kind of like, you know, it doesn't seem to be carrying the same type of message. Not in all cases, but I'm segueing now into the Grammys because the Grammys are on tonight. And, uh, you know, I worked on the Grammys for a long time and I had a lot of cool experiences you know, and, and thinking like what I just said, I remember watching Springsteen, you know, the, the rising was brand new. And I went to the first shows he had at the garden after he recorded it. And it was up for a Grammy later that year or the following, you know, I think it came out in, in 2002 and in 2003, he was at the Grammys. We did him in New York city. And I remember the, the dress rehearsal, you know, the sound check Bruce and the E street band playing the rising. And I remember how healing it felt you know, sitting there in the audience and looking at these other crew guys, you know, that were all from New York and all had been recently through 9-11, you know, and hearing a guy who's kind of a, you know, a worldwide star, but a regional poet in every sense in the word, much like, you know, Billy Joel, you know, if you grew up in the New York area, these guys kind of tell our stories for us, you know, and they have been since the seventies. So hearing that voice, we trust unpack the horrors of that day you know, and the anger and disillusionment and fear and loss and tragedy that we all felt, but then to marry it into a call to action, you know, a call to summon our better selves, to rise up in the face of evil and terror and fight for what's right in the name of our families and our land and our cities and our people and honor the bravery of those that sacrificed, you know, these firefighters that walked up these stairs, knowing they wouldn't come back down. You know, to witness that was what was like, this is what music can do. It can, it can, it can lead us, you know, it can, it can heal us. And we need that. We've been through trauma. You know, the world starts up again, kind of, but we're all still like, is it over? Cause it doesn't look like it's over. If you actually look, look at the science, but you go outside and nobody's wearing a mask anymore. And you know, it's a weird It's a weird place we're in. We're all just traumatized. And and coming out of two years, now we got something that most of us have never seen in our lifetimes happening now. You know, it's crazy. We're in crazy, crazy times, right? But we, you know, we we can still create stuff. We can still be kind to one another. We can still laugh. We need humor. You need comedians. You need people to point it out. I'm not saying that for me. I'm saying you need to keep talking, right? We, we're going to come back together, whether we like it or not, right? That's how this thing plays out. We can keep dividing ourselves from each other, right? But it's, it's one 
hand fighting the other, and we're all part of the same body. And that goes for all of humanity. And the sooner we understand that, the better off we are and and the quicker we can get back to healing and doing what we all really want to do, which is just live our lives. Everybody in every culture basically just wants the same thing. You know, you want to grow up, you want to get married, you want to have kids, you want to see your kids do well, you want to find a job you like or gives you meaning, you want to contribute something, you want to have enough money to eat and feed and buy yourself a, you know, mega yacht or, you know, a spaceship or something someday. (laughs) I'm joking, you know, a car, an education for your kids, whatever it is, you know, a bike, you know, you want to just live life day in, day out. It's a blessing to just be alive. We don't need so much, but we need everyone to have enough. And that's the problem is that not everyone has enough and some people want too much for themselves. And that has become the sort of political structure that is influencing nations. You know, that's what's going on here. The rights being manipulated by oligarchs on this side, the Koch brothers, the guys that don't want you to stop using gas, the guys that don't want you to wear a mask because they want to bake in that sense of rebellion when we have to ask people to really start doing stuff to conserve energy, which we should already be doing in the face of this conflict. You know, if you want to do something about it, waste as little as you can of something that requires fuel to heat. You know, like if you leave the hot water running for 20 minutes before you get in the shower, that ain't helping anybody. That's using a resource that has a limited amount and is causing a lot of conflict in the world. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go without, but it means means you have to be aware you know, of how all of this stuff is connected. And and you become aware of that, in my experience, through art, right? And through humanity and music and laughter. You know, the best comedians are like, yep, that's true. He's pointing out a truth about himself. I'm not equating this back to the other incident. I'm, you know, picking on somebody in the audience is always a tough, you know, it's always tough, like kind of crowd work. It's, I'm not judging it. I, I, I tend to not do it because I have a limited amount of stage time and I want to get these points across, hopefully in a humorous fashion to point out the hypocrisy, you know, and the underlying sort of motivators for this behavior. And and why I go so hard on the GOP is because I'm pissed that they're picking on innocent people. It's easy to get mad at these MAGA folks, you know, but I feel sorry for them when I drive through areas where I know it's kind of Trump country. I feel sorry for the guy in the house that has a let's go Brandon flag flying in his front yard. I know it's disgusting and an act of aggression, but it's also like, how broken is that dude's life? How many things didn't work out? You know, that they're like, let's blame another one and let's turn on our leader right now and get the other guy back. You know, let's stand in the way of the U.S. doing well, because I didn't get mine to the extent I thought I should in life. And now I want to hit back. And there's a whole party that just wants to hit back, right? And now they're hitting back on children, right? Florida passed its anti, don't say, you know, anti-LGBTQ law, one of many in this country. And by many, I mean like hundreds that are being proposed throughout this country. You're legislating hate against children or children who have parents that aren't like what some grifter is telling you what the nuclear family should be like. And none of these guys, you know, none of the, you know, do you think like Madison Cawthorn or Donald Trump, you know, or Kevin McCarthy, you know, or Jim Jordan or Mike Pence or any of these guys are coming from any kind of family you want to be a part of, you know, you want any of those guys looking after your kids, Matt Getz? Of course not. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, of course not. But they're conning these people in this sort of Christian fascist ideology, you know, that liberals are going to make your kid gay. There's nothing wrong with being gay. If your kid's gay, you're lucky. You got a blessing. Be glad you got a healthy, happy kid. Some people are born gay. Some people are born straight. It doesn't matter who you love. It matters how much you love. Right? But they're trying to legislate 
against that, these greasy little autocrats in Florida. And it's working because they're everywhere. It's like whoever lies the loudest wins now. That's what we see every day. And we got to get hip to combating it because we're not doing a great job. You know, the bad guys are winning all over the world. It's not enough to just put an emoji in your bio on Twitter of a blue wave and say, we're going to vote them all out because you're going to show up to vote that morning and realize it's gerrymandered, you know, beyond belief. Ohio is not going to have a competitive race for a Republican for like over a decade now because of their laws. You could wake up after this November and end up with Jim Jordan as Speaker of the House. Imagine what this country will be like then when every session of Congress is a chaos agent, you know, proposing legislation to impeach Biden, you know, or, or, or send Hunter Biden to Guantanamo or whatever boogeyman they'll make up in the face of the actual facts is that these guys were in cahoots with Putin and Trump and anti-democratic forces and tried to over, overturn an election here at home. You know, it's insane. So we got to get smart about calling it out. You know, we, we got to get go beyond just being addicted to the outrage. And then the next outrageous thing will happen. You know, we had a few of them this week. We had Madison Cawthorn with his cocaine and orgies comment, which is true, by the way. OK, they do have orgies and they do use drugs. And I, I've probably told this before, but, you know, when I was 18, I worked in the congressional budget office. I was like the in-house bike courier. You know, so I worked for a currying company in D.C. and they were like, hey, you're good on Capitol Hill. Just stay up there. And so I'd sit all day in the CBO library and then I'd deliver, you know, I'd go pick up a house document and bring it to a law firm on K Street or something on my bike and then go back and hang out in the library. So and I used to smoke cigarettes on the, you know, the steps of the CBO, which is like Southwest, I believe, you know, it's just east of the Capitol down, you know, down the hill. And I would sit down there and uh, smoke cigarettes and this page would talk to me from the page school, which is the congressional page school. So she was like 17 and would talk to me. We were friends. We were just, you know, BS when I was smoking cigarettes. And she would tell me all of her friends, you know, or most of her friends were dating congressmen, you know, and these were high school girls. She was like, oh, yeah, most of the girls hook up with dudes on Congress. And this was 1989. Right. And I've been to parties in the early 90s on Capitol Hill. Like there's debauchery that happens there. So I have no doubt that somebody did invite Madison Cawthorn to do an orgy. And I've already talked enough about the drug use, you know, and the, you know, the son of the leader of the GOP is high every night out of his mind on cocaine, you know, ranting on, you know, TV. And his dad was a dysfunctional drug addict to the extent he couldn't go downstairs until the Oval Office until noon every day. And they called it executive time, right? That's like Al-Anon in real time. They're codependent, right? With the White House. Oh, he's on executive time. No, he's not functional. He wakes up in the morning, takes two hours to snort Adderall and watch Fox and Friends before he can get in his diaper and get dressed enough and fix his stupid hair to walk down into the Oval Office. I was a drug addict. It's the most important job in the world. You should be there at seven in the morning, dude. <laughs> you know, you get a job on Wall Street. You're there when the market's open, right? Before the market's open. Show up at your desk at noon and see how long you last at JP Morgan, right? But the president of the United States, the guy basically in charge of the largest corporation in the world, right? The largest economy in the world. You know, the guy who's sitting at the head of the table for an operation so vast, wouldn't go to the office every day until noon. And it was accepted for four years. Another thing that I talk about, which is the theme of this show, is the, the rapid demoralization that occurs when the acceptable, unacceptable becomes acceptable. And that happens enough time and people become so disenfranchised, they just pull away from the process. And then the bad guys won which is why I'm always reminding people of this stuff, you know, because you don't want the bad guys to win. Love always wins, but truth needs to be a part of the process and light needs to be a part of the process. Like I say, when you get sober, you got to take an inventory. You got to, you know, a business that doesn't take stock and an honest appraisal of its saleable goods is a business that is doomed to fail. 
right? That's where we're at. We got to be honest about this. We got to take a full stock of what's going on, what this person did, what we accepted, or we're not going to stop it because now the unacceptable is commonplace. You know, McCarthy dressed down, which is a tough mental image. (laughs) I understand. But apparently dressed down Madison, Madison, I can't even say his name. I say his name like he spells it, Madison, Madison Cawthorn. Do you ever see him write like a four-year-old? But anyway, uh, he dressed him down this week in his office, right? If you saw the picture, Madison looked like he'd been crying when he came out of the office. But McCarthy didn't dress him down a week earlier or two weeks earlier when it was known that Madison Cawthorn was speeding yet again on a suspended driver's license. He didn't dress him down when he cleaned his gun in a Zoom meeting of the Veteran Affairs Committee sitting in his congressional office, cleaning his gun on camera while vets were talking about dying from toxic chemicals that they were exposed to in burn pits. This jerk off is cleaning his gun to look macho because deep down he felt like a little man because he wants all that military glory and knows he couldn't be a soldier. He couldn't hack it. He wasn't smart enough for the Naval Academy. He's not physically able to be a soldier, but he wants to be aggressive so the guns make him feel virile, which is a disgusting thing and, and probably the main selling point of the NRA, right? How many paunchy guys that would get winded running 50 yards got a closet full of guns and think of themselves as Rambo, right? That's the whole American gig right now. Guys sitting there eating Cheetos and Mountain Dew with a bunch of guns thinking they're going to be warriors. They're going to end up face down in a pile of mud, you know, because <laughs> they run out of breath. Right. So Madison Cawthorn is like the embodiment of that kind of toxic virility and mentality because he's not virile. Right. But does Kevin McCarthy admonish him for that? Does he admonish him for trying to take a knife or taking a knife into a school board meeting? Right. He had a knife in a big sheath, like a combat Rambo knife stuck into the back of his wheelchair. He tried to take a gun onto a plane. This guy's 26 years old. I couldn't imagine having that many like red flags and priors, you know, not to mention his lawsuits and lying about that or the 150 classmates that said he was a sexual predator. That's half the school. There's only 300 people at Patrick Henry College or wherever he went, right, for a semester and then ran for Congress because Mark Meadows made him his little boy and put him into Congress. And Mark Meadows is all over. January 6th, Mark Meadows is the first guy who should be in jail, right? He's the guy who was getting all of Jenny Thomas's texts, right? But he's not in jail. And his predecessor, Mick Mulvaney, is getting hired by CBS News to be a commentator, you know, another White House veteran now on the pipeline of mainstream media because they think Trump's coming back or at the very least will win the midterms and they want the conservative point of view. It's not a conservative point of view. It's a bunch of traitors that co-conspirated with a criminal enterprise to usurp democracy so they could all get paid. And they did it while manipulating a bunch of racist rubes in red states that don't know any better than to not vote against their own self-interest because they're listening to stupid like pablum country songs and buying Punisher stickers and watching stupid movies that aren't telling them the truth about what wars are really fought about. They're not fought for freedom. You're not as free as you think you are, you know? You're living in a corporation that owns jails. You're not living in a straight-up democracy because your vote doesn't count as much as Charles Koch's vote does, right? That's why you're being represented by Rand Paul, you know, and Mitch McConnell and all these other scumbags that are standing in the way of progress and using racist dog whistles every damn day to not appoint a Supreme Court justice. Yet at the very same time, they have a justice on there who clearly was involved with his wife's attempts to overturn a presidential election to the point she was texting the White House chief of staff and advising him on who he should hire, who he should fire, and when he should release the Kraken. What? (laughs) What? That's insane. 
It's all insane. But you got to pay attention. You got to stop them, you know. And you got to stay strong. You know, you got to stay positive. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find that out together. We're going to do it. We're going to survive. You know, we're going to see the flowers. We're going to hear the birds sing. We're going to help this country heal. Not our country as well as Ukraine, but, you know, I should just say, we'll help the world here. We got it. We're at a crossroads, you know, we're, we're at a tough point. We're not through this sort of like trauma that we've all been experiencing, right? That sort of began when, when Putin had a soft invasion of the U.S. in 2016, because that's what it was. That's what the Trump administration was, you know? It was an extension of the Cold War, and this time it was really coming from inside our borders and our boundaries, and it was incredibly effective. Okay. And a lot of people in this country got very brainwashed by Russian propaganda that they saw on Facebook and heard about in QAnon. And he's out there every week building a cult and raising money off of these dumb sons of bitches that are showing up in Michigan, you know, in Georgia and North Carolina, I think next week, where I think Madison, Madison, like, I don't know why I say his name like that, where Madison Cawthorn is going to speak, right? You know, don't underestimate how much power these guys have to like slip another stolen election past you because nobody looks into Lindsey Graham's suspicious election or Mitch McConnell's. These guys take it for granted that they're going to get reelected, you know, so we got to do all we can and we can do it, you know, and I appreciate you guys listening. I know this was kind of a, you know, it was a rough one, but my only goal in doing this podcast is to be honest, you know, with myself and how I'm feeling and, and record it and, and put it out to you guys. And if it strikes a nerve, good or bad, you know, that's sometimes what happens, you know, and we're in a time of truths, you know, and, and don't just take what I say for anything, you know, because that's not my intention. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to think about what really matters to you and try to get as much information you can about these subjects and try to look at your own life and figure like, how can I be on the side of good? Because every moment we have that choice, you know, and the more conscious we are, you know, of our ability to affect change, the quicker we're going to affect change, you know, and then we can all get back to rocking out and having fun because we all need some of that too. We need to come together in spirit and celebration and laughter, right? Which is, you know, some of you guys listening have been to my shows. That's what I try to make my comedy shows. You know, I, I talk about the serious stuff, but, you know, I try to do it in a way where it's funny. And I talk about anecdotes, you know, anecdotes of life on the road and some of the antics of some of the legends that I worked with, a couple of which were, were in Vegas the other night to honor Joni Mitchell on Music Cares. And Music Cares is like one of the coolest events on Grammy weekend. It happens the night before the Sunday broadcast. And, you know, they'll honor somebody. I worked on ones for Neil Young and uh, Bob Dylan and somebody else. But um, Jackson Brown usually performs. He, he performed the other night, I think. And uh, I know that Graham and Stephen Stills performed and uh, for Joni. And, you know, it was funny. That was one of my first big gigs with, with CSN was the Music Cares you know, I'd done some stuff on the East Coast, and that was the first time they flew me out to the West Coast. I'd, I'd already been working with, with Jackson, and they had the same management at the time, and they flew me out to L.A. for Grammy weekend. So I didn't do my normal Grammys Sunday. I got to sort of do the VIP thing and, uh, you know, be at this, like, cooler event because it's a very inside baseball thing, and the, the house band is Don Wass, you know, the great bass player, and it would be like, you know, really great musicians. Um, Buddy Miller um, was there as the guitar player one year. He plays sword amps like I do, you know, real inside baseball music stuff and, and really good performances. And so I get flown out there and my job is to take care of stills, which was always kind of like my main assignment in the CSN camp. And Dr. John was on this gig who I've worked with a bunch too. God rest, you know, God rest his soul. Dr. John was the man. But I remember it was the uh, first lesson I had into like the herding cat situation with CSN because like we all had to get ready for our hit and they were singing together. And uh, 
I think with Neil or something, you know, and uh, this was probably 12 years ago and everything went smooth for the sound check. And we went back to the hotel and like, I brought stills to get like some steak, you know, in downtown LA for lunch and everything. And it was my first time hanging out with a guy who became like a rock and roll uncle to me. But, you know, I was sort of always in awe of his talent as I still am. And, you know, he's not the easiest guy to deal with sometimes in terms of just like, if you're a little like reticent to tell somebody what to do, he's a tough guy to, to make, you know, tell him what to do. And uh, so I'd, I'd be standing back a little bit and we were about to perform. It was sort of places. Everybody got in their shirts and their shoes. And we were in this little duvetine dressing room. And I, I look and Steven's putting his, he wears these fancy loafers on stage. He was putting his loafers on, you know, and uh, I, I stick my head back outside the pipe and drape. And I, you know, I talk to somebody or whatever. And then Graham comes up to me. He's like, we're, we're on in, in two seconds. Where, where is Steven? And I'm like, he's in the dressing room. And I open the door, you know, the duvetine, the black fabric, and he's not there anymore. And Graham, like, who doesn't get pissed, looked at me like, this is, you had one job, bro. You better find him right now. And I panic, just pure panic. And this is all taking place stage left where, where we loaded artists onto the stage. And I happened to just run over to the right side of the stage, you know, in my moment where like, you know, a second later, I probably just would have run out of the auditorium. This is at the convention part of the Staples Center for anybody who really knows it, you know. So I was ready to just run outside to that parking lot and, you know, hitch a ride on the freeway. If I couldn't find him, you know, I would have lived in rock and roll ignominy. But I happen to look on the right side of the stage and he's sitting there. He's got the curtain kind of open a little bit and he's stuck his face in and he's watching Dr. John play, you know, because Stills has deep ties to to new orleans and live there and stuff and you know i was like oh man like he's a fan too like i gotta remember that that i'm working with these cats but these cats get turned on by other cats you know like that's what this is about you know like even a stephen stills is like damn dr john's on stage you know so that's what that event is you know it's like you know musicians get to pay you know respect to other musicians that influence them and, and raise money for a good cause. Music cares, you know, takes care of musicians that, that run into crisis with addiction and things like that. And uh, that's an important thing. You know, that's what we got to focus on. We got to take care of our own. You know, it's hard out there on the road, right? We just lost Taylor. Like we know that, you know, as long as this business has been happening, we've been losing people along the way, you know, and the more resources we have, to not do that, you know, the, the more we, we create, you know, a world in which we can take care of people and our artists and musicians. So it's a good cause and it's just a fun rocking out night. And they did it in Vegas. So I think it got a little weird this year, but things usually do in Vegas. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's it. You know, come see me if you want to come see me live, man. I'm writing all new stuff for this next show. I'm going to be at the City Winery on June 7th in New York City. And I'm going to be in Philadelphia on June 8th. So back-to-back shows on the East Coast, two major markets. Come on out, man. It's going to be a celebration. I'll be in Cape Cod later this summer for a gig. I'll announce that shortly. But those city winery gigs are where it's at. So tell a friend, bring a friend, come and see me. Stay safe. You can always find me on Twitter, noelcastler.com. And uh, get a T-shirt if you want a T-shirt, if you like the uh, show. And... uh, you know, I hope to see you. I hope to hear from you. Don't be a stranger. Take care of yourselves. Until next week, love and peace. Bye.